Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Eric Kirschenbaum about the Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy. Wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this chat or any of my author conversations enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to purchase it through bookshop.org. Now, they don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, please do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Books on Pod. This is Avi Loeb, author of Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Dr. Eric Kirschenbaum is a zoologist with a specialty in wolves and astrobiologist at Girton College University of Cambridge. He's also now a published author. His new book is The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy, What Animals on Earth Reveal About Aliens and Ourselves. Eric, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Great. So what was your goal with the Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, it really came about because in the work that I do and looking at animals on Earth and how they communicate, how they behave, it starts to become clear that there are a lot of things that seem to be common processes that are going on and things that just seem to happen over and over again. And when you think about them happening over and over again, all these evolutionary innovations, then you start to realize that these are really common solutions to common problems that animals are facing here on Earth. And these problems are problems that life's going to face anywhere in the universe. So maybe it is that even on other planets where life might be very different from here, they're still solving the same problems and they're still coming up with the same solutions to them as well. Why does the evolution of flight within birds and bats help to validate this theory? Well, some of the things that we see about how animals are on Earth are really tightly constrained just by the laws of physics, right? Things fall in gravity. That's just the way it is. And water is thicker than air and things fall faster in air than in water. Stuff like that, you can't get away from. It's going to be the same on an alien planet as it is here. And so if you want to stay up in the air, for whatever reason, because there's food in the air or to get away from predators or something, there are not that many ways you can do it, right? The ways that animals fly on Earth, there's nothing special about Earth. These are just the ways that you can fly. And, and having a wing is actually one of the few ways that you can stay up in a fluid medium. Form and function are important concepts to understand with regards to animals. And as a result, aliens which is more important to consider when thinking about aliens, though, form or function, and why? So when you think about aliens or when anyone imagines about what aliens might be like or when a movie producer thinks about what shape of and color of aliens to put in a movie, we think about the way they look, the way they appear, because you know that's what we see on the screen or, or what we think of in our minds. But actually, the details of how creatures might look on another planet are really dependent, very strongly dependent on the coincidences of the particular history of life on that planet. It's going to be very hard to guess what color aliens are, for instance, without actually going there and seeing them. On the other hand, there are plenty of things about alien life which we can be confident about because they're not so dependent on coincidences. So the kind of examples that I give are things like having a symmetrical body, right? having a left side and a right side. It's just really, really useful. And that's why 99.9% of animals on Earth has that kind of structure to it. So the functional aspects of life, how they solve the problems that they have, how they find food, how they move, how they mate, these are the things that we can know about even if the details of what they look like is going to be much harder to know about. And I believe you cite the various theories surrounding why zebras have stripes as part of your overall point here too, correct? Right. So the specifics of why animals might be striped or why they might have a particular color is something you can't predict. Okay, You just need to know about the ecosystem in which they live and, and how are we going to know about an ecosystem on an alien planet? That's a tall order. But the fact that animals will need to camouflage themselves and that they will need to camouflage themselves according to how they're being hunted is something that's going to be in common. So if the predators on a particular planet are hunting by vision, then they'll have visual camouflage. If you find your prey through sound, for instance, so 
the way that bats catch insects is through using their sonar, the moths that they catch use acoustic countermeasures to block the sonar of the bats. So that the way that the prey animals are protecting themselves will depend on the specifics of how they're being hunted. Perhaps the question that you asked that might appeal to our most sophomoric senses is whether or not aliens have sex in the way that we think about sex. What are sexual selection and kin selection, and why are you unsure if these evolutions exist beyond Earth? Well, obviously, when we think about alien life, we really don't know what their biochemistry is, right? We don't know if it's based on DNA, if it's based on something like DNA, something completely different, if it's based on something other than carbon, maybe. We don't know. So it's really hard to draw conclusions from what we see about the specifics of how sex works on Earth, which is through DNA, right? You have two parents. And that's something that seems to be likely to exist on other worlds, but by no means guaranteed. One thing that we do know, or that we can postulate with some sort of confidence, is that just having asexual reproduction, so if I just give rise to lots of offspring that are identical to me, that's not very conducive to rapid evolution. So on a planet which only had asexually reproducing bacteria, they're likely to remain bacteria, and we're not likely to see the kind of complex animals and plants that we see on Earth. So some form of sexual reproduction is going to be quite likely if complex life exists. But what it might be depends on that underlying biochemistry. So, you know, might have two parents, might have five parents, might have three sexes, might have seven sexes. We just don't know. Are there examples here on Earth of animals who literally have five or more parents? Well, there's certainly examples of fungi that have multiple sexes. So although we think of just two sexes, but there are certainly organisms on Earth where there may be tens or possibly even hundreds of different sexes. And that's driven by the need to be sure that you can reproduce with whoever you meet. You've got to be sure that whoever you meet, you can mate with. (laughs) So that kind of thing we do see on Earth, but because all life on Earth is based on DNA, that has been a fundamental constraint on quite how many parents we can have. You discuss how difficult it is to actually define what exactly an animal is. And part of the difficulty with this classification is that there are always exceptions, Eric. You point out that while dolphins and fish were thought of for a long time as the same thing, ultimately it was realized that dolphins and whales for that matter are in fact mammals more so than fish. What was the revelation in the 1800s that allowed us to better define animals? Well, it it was pretty impressive, actually, how ancient natural scientists and even natural scientists, Renaissance and Enlightenment natural scientists, managed to do a good job of classifying life. I mean, they got it pretty much right just by looking at the shapes of animals and the different bones that they had and how they were put together. And the assumption was that if two animals are similar then they are closely related or similar or in some way belong to the same category. The revelation, of course, was that all life evolved from earlier forms of life. And that means that if you follow back our family tree, eventually we all have a common ancestor. And since that common ancestor, those branches of the family tree have been diverging and separating and getting further and further apart. So Now we have a situation where we understand that any two animals are related. They're just related more closely or more distantly. And this then becomes a much more natural way to class organisms together, to put them together in groups. Not how similar they look, but how closely related they are, how long ago they shared a common ancestor. Do animals share any one physical characteristic that does separate us from other organisms? Well, this actually ties into the previous question, because although animals do share certain characteristics that make them animals, movement, for instance, is the obvious one, there are always exceptions, and there are animals that don't move around. But what makes animals animals is not their properties, it's where they came from, it's who their common ancestor was. All animals descended from one individual that lived many hundreds of millions of years ago. And all of that individual's descendants were animals. 
whereas the fungi, for instance, all the fungi in the world were descended from a single organism that was not a descendant of this animal progenitor. So it's really in the modern scheme of things, the way we look at things these days, it would be wrong to try and define animals by what they have, what their properties are, rather to define them in terms of where they evolved from and where they came from. And then we have much less problem with the exceptions, although we haven't got rid of that problem completely. So I guess that begs the question then of, do you predict that we will ultimately need to classify aliens as animals? And perhaps more importantly, and I know you point this out in your writings, should we treat them as animals? So here's the problem, which is that although when Darwin proposed evolution by natural selection, we understood that the correct way to classify life is by their family history and by their relatedness and their origins, that system just doesn't help us once we discover alien life, because we won't be related to alien life unless it's Martian life that evolved together with Earth life. But if we were to discover life from another solar system, we won't have any relationship with it. So does that mean that all our categories are now no longer any use? I don't think so. I think we have to go back a little bit and start thinking about defining categories like animal based on how they live and how they make their living and how they get around and how they find food. Because otherwise we could have a ridiculous situation where we discover a planet with human-like organisms on it and we're not even prepared to call them animals, which would seem counterintuitive. Mm. You just mentioned the ability to move is perhaps the most common trait amongst animals. Why is the ability to move so crucial to all other developments like cooperation and sociality, but especially intelligence? Well, the thing that really makes animals different from plants and fungi and other organisms on Earth is that they have to run after their food. Okay, there are many ways of finding food, finding energy. Energy is essential for all life. Plants do it by sitting still and absorbing the light of the sun. Animals don't do that. Animals have to go look for their food. And that's really defined what they are and what animals do and how they do it. So since finding energy is one of the most important things that you have to do, then when you do that by moving around, then it's that motion that's defining who you are, how you solve your problems, and how you get on in the world. And because you're now faced with a lot of choices to go left or to go right at the simplest level, you're in the situation where you can start trying to solve problems. Plants don't really have very many problems. They need to grow up so that they're not shaded, but they don't have a lot of decisions to make. The moment that you're moving, the moment that you're moving in time and in space, you're making decisions. And that means you've got problems to solve. And so really the intelligence that's evolved in animals is a result of the fact that they have to go out and find their food. That is the energy part of the equation. Animals also evolve as a result of finding space to live and reproduce. Do you think that aliens also move around and compete for these sorts of things or maybe something else altogether? One of the laws of evolution, if you want to call it a law, but one of the properties that we see again and again is that if there's an opportunity that can be exploited, it will be exploited. So, in other words, if you imagine a hypothetical alien planet where everyone is crowded into one very small area and there's plenty of room elsewhere, someone's going to evolve to use that elsewhere. Someone's going to evolve to go there because they can gain some sort of advantage that they didn't get when they were in their crowded place that they started. So, for the really important things in life, so we're talking about energy, we're talking about space, to some extent, we're talking about time as well. These are things that are limited. There's not an unlimited amount of it. You can't just have unlimited energy. There's never unlimited space. We're always out of time. So finding ways to exploit extra time, energy, space is always going to be an advantage to someone. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned time right there. And that essentially means that we're always up against the clock to try and make these other things happen. That's what you mean by that? Absolutely. Yeah. And that can manifest itself in different ways. It can manifest itself in terms of aging, which is a very interesting process, which is likely to occur on other planets as well. But it can also manifest itself in terms of predation. So if a T-Rex is 
coming to get you, then you can't just stand around and do nothing. You've got to make time-critical decisions about how to get away. Movement evolves out of necessity, as you've just talked about. We became capable, we humans became capable of running long distances on two legs with stable heads for survival. Why do you think alien planets are filled with animals that move like fish? Well, fish are an interesting example. Of course, on Earth, life seemed to have evolved in water. And there are many good reasons why that should have happened, primarily because chemical reactions just work better in liquid than they do in solids or gases. So life is likely to evolve in water. And water, which is quite dense, allows you to float. So fish float. Birds don't float, right? Birds have to flap to keep themselves in the air. So one of the things that we see on Earth is that a lot of life which exists in the ocean is making use of this tremendous opportunity, which is that you can just sort of float around, okay? You can move very, very easily with very little friction compared to moving along a solid surface. So crabs, for instance, have to move on the floor of the sea they have to be careful about how to use their legs to scuttle along and so they're not pulling themselves across the rocks and incurring a, a lot of friction. So the thing about fish, the reason that fish and other sea animals are so successful and so diverse, it's partly because life began in, in the oceans, but also because it's a huge space to get around. We've got all three dimensions to move in and you can move through all three dimensions relatively easily. What are Fortean bladders, and how likely are these to be a part of life on other planets? And then the question is, why don't we see fish in the sky? Same sort of principle, right? There's lots of room. You can move in all three dimensions. The trouble is that although air and water are both fluid, so you can move through them, but water is much more dense. It's easy to float in water. It's very, very difficult to float in air. You need to be extremely light. Now, it's not impossible because we know there are plenty of biological reactions that produce hydrogen, for instance. So you could certainly have an animal with a giant sack of hydrogen on its back floating through the air. And then the question is, why don't we see that? And if we don't see it on Earth, maybe it would exist on other planets. The real reason we don't see floating whales on Earth is nothing to do with the fact that they can't float. As I said, they could under a sack of hydrogen. It's because there's no food in the air. Because hmm. things don't float in the air very well, things tend to fall out of the air. And so anything that they might be eating, it's going to be very, very scarce. In the water, there's always kinds of plankton floating around. You can always eat lots of different, uh, different organisms. In the air, things just tend to fall. And so there doesn't seem to be much of an advantage to being a floating organism. Does that mean there wouldn't be floating whales on other planets? Not necessarily, because there could be planets in which there's sufficient forces, air currents, or, or something keeping food in the air. And if that were to be the case, then you could see a whole ecosystem arising around that. You broached the subject of communication as part of the Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy. Perhaps a bit of a superficial question here, but I've watched a lot of sci-fi movies in my life, Eric. Is telepathic communication likely among aliens? Telepathic communication is one of the things I usually give as an example of what can't evolve. And the reason that telepathy can't really evolve, it's nothing to do with how it's done. There are plenty of things that could happen that we just don't understand the mechanism of. It's more to do with the fact that we don't see how it could evolve. Because all of our communication, speaking, sight, even our smell communication, and the way that animals communicate using smell and pheromones, all of these things derive from sensing the world around us. The only way we communicate is by using our senses. No one is going to evolve a communication system if no one is listening. Hmm. It doesn't give you any advantage. There's no point in me listening for other people's brainwaves if no one's transmitting their brainwaves. So it just doesn't seem evolutionarily likely that an organism would ever see an advantage to being telepathic because no one's talking telepathically. And this is a really important lesson that no matter how useful a particular trait might be, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to evolve. It has to be useful in its embryonic stage as well. 
As a zoologist, you've taken special interest in wolves, and wolves are incredible creatures. I may ask you something specific to wolves at the end of our chat today, but why is the communication of wolves important to know about when considering alien communication? One of the key things that we need to look at life on Earth if we want to understand life on other planets is where and why animals do similar things in very different circumstances, because that reveals underlying rules, right? Underlying laws and underlying constraints. And what particularly interests me about wolves, and when I started getting involved in working with wolves, I'd, I'd come from background of working more with dolphins, is just how similar the sounds of wolves and dolphins are. Now, you may not think that they are that similar, and on the face of it, they're not. But in fact, if you slow down a dolphin whistle and you play it slowed down, it sounds a lot like a wolf howl. And this is no coincidence. This is because the way, the effective way to get information from one mountaintop to another is by howling. And the way to get information effectively from one dolphin to another underwater where you, you can't see anything, where the sound is easily absorbed, is through whistling. And these are very, very similar types of sounds. And those kinds of common mechanisms are also going to be operating on other planets. So we can expect aliens that are communicating from one alien mountaintop to another to do something like howl. I'm thinking about each of those sounds in my head right now. Is a dolphin's whistle essentially a compressed and maybe sped up version of a wolf's howl? They are very similar, yes. They have, they have very similar properties. So they have a single tone, so they're, they're, they're quite simple sounds. And they vary the pitch of that tone up and down, and that's what contains the information. So in, in that sense, they're very similar. What are some of the most unique ways that animals communicate on this planet? Well, we're familiar, of course, with all the things that we do, communicating by sound, by sight, by touch. And animals do all of these things, and they communicate by smell as well, which we do to a small extent. There are some ways of communicating that we don't do at all, and Bat sonar and dolphin sonar, of course, are, the, are the, the immediately obvious ones. The one that I enjoy thinking about a lot is that of electric fishes. So there are fish that live in the murky rainforest rivers where they can't use sight and, and it's difficult to use sound if it's a fast-moving river as well. And so they've evolved the ability to sense their environment by generating an electric field and sensing distortions in the electric field. It's utterly impossible for us to imagine, to envisage how the world might appear to you if you're sensing it through variations in the electric field. And what's really interesting is that once they're using this electric sensing apparatus that they have in their bodies, then they start using it for communication as well. Hmm. And they've then adapted that electric sensing ability to send messages to one another through electric fields. Electroreception is such a fascinating concept. Why do more animals not communicate with electricity? You'd have thought that it would be incredibly widespread because it does seem to be very, very useful. I mean, it's very accurate and it can contain an awful lot of information. You could really have a very effective electric field language. The reality is, though, of course, that for every good thing that you get, you pay a cost. And there's a cost-benefit trade-off for everything in evolution. And it turns out that generating electric fields is pretty difficult. And if you've ever had the battery die on your cell phone, you'll know that you can't have an infinite amount of electricity. These animals have converted most of their body to being electric batteries. And it's a huge investment for a very specific situation that just wouldn't be worth it in any other environment. It's just too much dedicating all of your energy and your resources to generating these electric fields. As you mentioned, humans use pretty much all of our senses to communicate, and the most impressive is our complex vocal communication abilities. Why are our nearest relative, the great ape, so primitive in this regard, even compared to other non-human species? So the reason that animals have complex communication, if they do, is mostly to allow them to live and function and operate successfully in complex societies and complex groups. So the more complex the, the society is, the more complex its communication must be. 
we see in great apes really quite complex communication. Chimpanzees, for instance, have very complex gestural communication. And that takes them as far as they need for their societal purposes. Something happened in human evolution. Something happened a couple of million years ago. We don't really know when. We don't really know what. And human societies became incredibly more complex so that it was necessary to have an even more complex communication system. And that's essentially what happened. We know very little about why, we know very little about how, but our brains grew to be so large, to a large extent, to support this kind of communication and understanding of, of social environments and social relationships. You can't expect an animal to invest so much in such a large brain and in the ability to have complex communication if it really doesn't need to. It's just a waste. The great apes, they communicate exactly as much as they need to, no more, no less. Some animals use smell as their primary form of communication. Which do so, and what are the advantages here? Smell's probably the oldest form of communication. So even the earliest, earliest life forms, long before animals, could sense food in the water around them and move towards their food. And so from that sensing ability evolved the ability to communicate with chemicals. And we see the bacteria even use chemical communication today. It's extremely widespread. It's very, very easy, simple to have smell sensing organs. And so you see almost every animal on earth uses smell. But smell is limited. There's a limited amount of information that you can put in a smell. Even if you can distinguish lots of smells, and we know that dogs and rats can distinguish thousands and thousands of different smells. But it's really difficult to find where they're coming from. And it's really difficult to know who's sending them. And they travel very slowly. Smells just travel slowly. So it's the sort of communication that works for a lot of applications. So perhaps if you want to know whether someone belongs to your group or not, it's easy to tell by sniffing them. Or if you want to know what another dog's been eating, you can smell them and find out. But if you want to send complex messages, it just doesn't hold up. It's too slow. It's too easily mixed up. You can imagine two people talking at the same time. You can distinguish what each of them are saying. But if two people are, are making smells at the same time, you're not going to be able to distinguish them from each other. <laughs> Only a fool would think that humans are still the sole intelligent species on Earth. Are there any fundamental traits of animal intelligence that may be applicable to why aliens might possess a certain intelligence? Well, all animals are intelligent. All animals are intelligent because their lifestyle involves solving problems. This is why they move. They move because they could go left or could go right, and they have to decide which one. So they need some form of intelligence. And the types of intelligence that different animals develop are suitable to the types of problems that they need to solve. When humans talk about intelligence, we're really talking about intelligence like us. Okay, So we'd really like to find aliens who are intelligent in the same way as us, not intelligent in the way that hedgehogs are, for instance. And our intelligence is largely the result of our complex society. So it means like social intelligence. It means like understanding what other people are thinking and what other people intend to do. And if alien animals live in large complex societies, then they should have those same intelligent abilities because those are fundamental requirements for living in such a complex society. So I don't think it would be surprising at all to find complex life on another planet where those complex life forms were living in large groups, then to have an intelligence that we could recognize. One of the most wonderfully surprising things that I read in your book, Eric, is that some non-human animals have senses of humor. Which ones and how do we know this? Well, a sense of humor is something we think of as being very human. But again, all these cognitive abilities that we think of as being human are really social cognitive abilities. So sense of humor in humans exists because it helps us to navigate all of our social situations that we find ourselves in. I'll give you an example. If you bump into someone and they turn around and they look really angry at you, you don't want to get into a fight. So you might try and diffuse the situation with some humor. Well, when you put it that way, it's really not at all surprising that 
other animals like chimpanzees, for instance, in a similar situation would resort to similar ways of diffusing conflict. It's really a way of managing living in these very complex societies where there are so many individuals you don't necessarily know how one particular individual is going to react to you. And these are the tools that we've evolved and not surprising that other animals have evolved them as well. So rather than looking at a trait like sense of humor and saying, well, this is fundamentally human because we see it so clearly in us and we don't see it clearly in other animals, we should ask why we have a sense of humor. And then it can become clear that other animals should have that as well. So do aliens tell one another knock knock jokes then? You know, every inhabited alien planet is going to have a diversity of life on it. Some are just going to have bacteria, right? Some are just going to have really simple life. Some are going to have more complex life, more complex ecosystems. Some of them, some of these alien planets are going to have complex organisms that are living in complex societies. And I'm not saying that all aliens will have a sense of humor, but the ones that live in those societies that do have to negotiate those kinds of social interactions will be telling each other jokes, yes. You ask whether or not aliens are social. Why do you consider this to be perhaps the most important question in the book? Sociality is something that is going to arise almost inevitably once you have what we like to call animals. Again, it comes back to movement. Okay? Once you can move, you can choose where you're going to be. You can choose to be with someone or you can choose not to be with someone. And so a whole chain of evolutionary events is set into play. There will be occasions when it suits animals to be together in a group, and there will be occasions when it suits them not to be in a group. Once all of those dynamics start happening, then complex groups become almost inevitable. And again, that leads us down this road towards the kind of complex sociality that is recognizable to us. So although we would be absolutely fascinated to find a planet covered in bacteria or perhaps small invertebrates or something like that. It would be absolutely amazing. Let's not kid ourselves. What we really want to find is aliens like us. <laughs> that would be the big discovery. And so all we need to hope for is that there are planets where aliens form complex social groups. And then there's a good chance that we will be able to recognize life on those planets as being something similar to us. The obvious reason why animals or perhaps aliens would form a cooperative society is for the sake of survival, something that we've talked about throughout the course of this conversation. Is there a less obvious but still important reason for the formation of cooperative societies? Well, one of the main forces driving social behavior on Earth is the fact that parents look after their children. And this is something that follows directly from the laws of evolution as we've come to understand them and the mathematical constraints on evolutionary processes. But we know that parents look after their children because it increases their own fitness. It increases their representation in future generations. What we understand now is that it's not just that parents look after their children, but that you tend to look after all of your relatives. So parents might look after their nieces and nephews as well, their cousins. That in itself is a good reason to live in a group. That in itself, if you are a young bird and you are thinking of flying away and finding your own nest, well, if it's a rough world out there, maybe you're better off staying at home for a bit, helping your parents raise your brothers and sisters. So social groups can form for very clear survival reasons like wildebeest coming together in a herd to protect them from lions, but they can also form through these evolutionary processes that we call kin selection because relatives tend to help each other. And if that process is operating on alien worlds, then we're going to see a lot of very similar kinds of societies arising as well. What is the prisoner's theory and how might this provide an alternate explanation for animal cooperation? So a lot of animal behavior that we observe today can be explained remarkably easily using some mathematical principles called game theory. Game theory was uh, invented actually first in the field of economics to explain why people cheat and why people cooperate. But it's based on some very, very simple mathematical principles that are 
very broadly applicable. And what's nice about math, right, is that it doesn't matter what planet you're on. The maths are still the same. So if it's true on Earth, it's going to be true on an alien planet as well. And the kinds of things that game theory predicts is, for instance, that it's kind of good to be in a minority. All right. So if everyone is doing one thing, sometimes it's good to be doing something slightly different. There's less competition. You might be exploiting some kind of resource that everyone else is overlooking. That's one of the examples. The other example that, that you gave, the prisoner's dilemma, says that individuals will behave selfishly. But selfishness can sometimes be converted into cooperation if two individuals think that they can gain from cooperating. So the rules and situations under which two individuals might work together or might work against each other can be quite well described with mathematical models. And this is something that we know will work for, for animals on other worlds, just like it does here. One result of cooperation is reciprocity. Why are vampire bats a great example of this? So when you help others and you expect to get something in return, this comes very naturally to us as humans. You help me out with something and I'll remember that you helped me out and, and I'll help you out later. That happens very, very rarely in other animals. And probably it happens very rarely simply because they just don't live in large groups. And if they do, they can't remember who everyone is. You can imagine again, a herd of a, a million wildebeest and one of the wildebeests helps you, but you're never going to find them again. And if you did, you wouldn't recognize them. So these animals haven't developed the brain structures necessary to remember who helped them and when and, and to reciprocate and to pay people back for their good deeds and also to punish them if they've been nasty to them. Occasionally, occasionally in animals, you find unexpected reciprocity. You find unexpected behaviors where animals that you wouldn't have thought were able to remember who's been helpful and who hasn't, and yet they're still doing that. And vampire bats are this very perplexing example where when the bats go out to feed and they come back from looking for blood meals, and some of the bats will have been successful in feeding and some won't. And actually, they need to feed every day. Otherwise, they will actually starve to death. So the ones who've been unsuccessful are given small amounts of blood from the successful animals. And most likely, although we don't understand this completely, but most likely they do that because it's in everyone's interest that unfed animals are supported. And then that way, if you come back the next night and you, know, and you haven't fed, then you know you're going to get some blood to stop you from starving to death. But exactly how a behavior like that is stabilized and how it isn't exploited by cheaters, these are the kinds of things that we need to go to the mathematical side of game theory to explain. Cooperation leads to a transfer of information or communication. What is a good definition for communication when talking about a non-human species? Communication is very widespread. All animals communicate, a lot of plants communicate. It's something that seems to arise inevitably when organisms are in competition with each other. And the definition of communication is a little odd, right? The definition of communication that we have as biologists is it's a signal that modifies someone's behavior to your advantage. That's all the communication is, right? We only communicate because we're modifying someone's behavior to our advantage. Now, that can be a very negative thing, mm -hmm. manipulation and deceit. It can be a very positive thing, for instance, if you're courting someone and so you have mating signals. But we can only understand communication properly if we understand it in its evolutionary context, why it's evolved, why do animals do it at all? And so on other worlds as well, this rule is going to hold. Communication will evolve because it manipulates people, other organisms' behavior. Now, of course, in human society, we've, to a large extent, moved beyond that. There are many other reasons that we communicate. There are many other reasons that we entertain people and, and we write literature and so on. But we'll only understand that if we understand its evolutionary roots, which is through manipulation. It's interesting that decision-making also helps communication to evolve. How so? Okay, you want to expand on that? Uh, well, that's uh, something that you talked about in the book, is that the need to make decisions helps us evolve our communication because it helps us come to the proper conclusions to then make the right or sometimes wrong choice. Right. 
So when we have decisions to make, obviously we want to make those decisions on the basis of the best information that we can. We can gather information ourselves. We may be able to get information from others. So communication here can be very helpful. If I'm looking for food and another animal comes and tells me, well, don't go over there because there's a leopard over there and he'll eat you. So that's very useful information that helps me to make my decisions. Communication can provide me with useful information. The trouble is I need to decide whether I trust that individual. And I need to decide whether the information that I'm receiving from others is actually reliable or not. And this becomes extremely complicated. So obviously if it's my father who's telling me, don't go over there, there's a leopard, I'm more likely to trust him than if it's a rival of mine. So communication arises and becomes complex through the way it can be used to make these decisions. But we always have to be, all animals, all organisms have to be constantly, constantly assessing whether information is reliable, whether a, a, another animal may be trying to exploit me and to manipulate me. The famous example, of course, is the, the drongos in South Africa. It's a bird that sits on a tree and watches meerkats foraging below. And it's advantageous to both of them to give an alarm call if they see a predator and, and the meerkats know to run if the bird alarms and vice versa. Sometimes the bird will give an alarm call when there's no predator coming. The meerkats all run for cover and the bird flies down and eats their food. You can't do that too often. If you did that too often, the meerkats would stop paying attention to your alarm call. So there's a balance there between manipulation and mutual benefit. How do you think aliens pass along info to each other? Well, there will be, as I said, a diversity of life on any planet that we come to. Some will communicate a lot. Some will communicate hardly at all. If they're what we would call animals, we would expect them to communicate. If they are social animals, and we expect there to be at least some social animals on these planets, then their communication will be more complex. The ways in which they communicate, in other words, which senses they use, will depend very much on the nature of the planet. Okay, If they're underwater or if they're in air, it makes a lot of difference to what kind of senses you can use. You can barely use vision as a communicative tool underwater. It's very short range. Eric, one of the things that does separate us from other species is the complexity of our language. And you point out some shocking similarities between languages. Which is the most surprising to you and why? Well, all human languages are really one language, right? It's certainly when you compare it to other animal communication on Earth, we're completely different. So we tend to group all human languages together and just say, well, this is human language. This is the one example that we have. And we often tend to think that the way we do things is the only way to do it. So all human languages have verbs and nouns and sentences and so on. And you might think that that's what a language is. But don't forget, we're all looking at the same language. It's all human language. It all came from the same origin. So it's perhaps not surprising that we all use words and verbs and nouns and sentences. The question is, is that the only way to do it? Is there something special about human language and the way that we can manage to talk like that? Or is it just one way out of many? And that perhaps animals communicate similarly without using distinct different words. This is this is a really big topic. This is something that we don't have a really good answer to. Most people think that language probably has to contain something like words and probably has to contain something like grammar. But I'm not convinced at all. I, I think that we're struggling with the fact that we've only got one example of language to work with, one example of natural language to work with. And we're drawing all our conclusions from that. Do animals have a language? Probably not. We don't really think that any animal species other than ourselves communicates the kind of volume of information that we have. So it's very difficult to compare and to ask, well, what might alien languages be like when we're going from just the one example that we have? If another animal, let's say a dolphin, evolved to communicate in a way that humans could understand, would that be a good thing? Dolphins, chimpanzees, wolves... All these other intelligent animals are not waiting to evolve into humans, okay? <laughs> it's not like Planet of the Apes. It's not like if we were to disappear, then someone else would have language. These are animals that have evolved to 
fill their niche really well. They do their job really well. Dolphins are fantastically well adapted for what they do. They don't need to be humans. They don't need to have human language. You ask, would it be a good thing if another species evolved to have a language? It would be good for them. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. It would be because they need it. It would be because their social structure is such that they can't get along without being able to communicate with all this information, transfer so much information between them. So I think that if it did happen, it would almost by definition be good. So is there a chance then that, you know, considering everything that we've just talked about over the last couple of answers, that even if they do speak a language that we might not detect it in aliens? Yeah, I think that is something that a lot of people are very worried about. I think that there's two, I suppose, opposing positions you could take. One would be to say that, um, no, there are some things that are going to be in common. They've got to be in common. Mathematics is mathematics. If aliens wanted to talk to us, they'd find a way to do it if they were intelligent enough you know, to build radios and things like that and spaceships. They would find a way to do it using mathematics because mathematics is the thing in common. And there's something to that. There's something to that that should we find an alien civilization, then we'd be able to communicate at least something to them. The other end of the scale is to say we stand essentially no chance of understanding an alien language because we're never going to get the nouns, right? When the alien says, well, this is an alien dog, we have no idea what they're talking about because we've never seen one. So without that ability to interact while communicating, it may not be possible to understand each other. Language is essentially a cooperative venture, even though we may read a book without anyone else being involved. Learning a language is all about a two-way process, a cooperative process. So it might be extremely difficult to translate an alien language if we just have all the symbols down on paper in front of us. Where does the possibility and potential of artificial intelligence fit in with our estimates of alien life? Well, a lot of people think that, quite reasonably, I suppose, that when we discover alien life, it will be artificial. It will be robots and computers and so on. And the reasoning goes that, well, we've just sort of started in the technological age and already we have fantastically intelligent computers. And just imagine what it'll be like in a thousand years or 10,000 years or a million years from now. So aliens who are liable to be way ahead of us technologically, simply because we're about as unadvanced technologically as you can imagine. So aliens are likely to be more advanced than us. So they're likely to have very advanced computers, robots, artificial life with all of its advantages and, and all of its superiority. So a lot of people think that alien life will simply be artificial when we discover it. There's a problem with that, which is that why haven't we discovered it? <laughs> if it's so good, if you've got these super intelligent computers driving robots all over the universe, then you'd expect to be seeing them every day. And we don't. So that's yet another puzzle in our quest for alien intelligence, I'm afraid, and one which we don't have a really good answer for. Do you think aliens wage war with one another like we do? Of course, one of the answers to my previous question of why we don't see aliens, might well be that they've all destroyed each other. <laughs> that, in fact, once a civilization such as ourselves reaches a certain technological level, it becomes extremely unlikely that it will survive. And from what we've seen and from what we can see of the way that the human race is going and, and dealing with climate change and so on, this seems quite likely. It seems quite likely that humans won't survive for a very long time. And if that's the case, there could have been millions, maybe even billions of alien civilizations, and it's just that very few of them survived. That's a plausible explanation. If they did survive, then perhaps that tells us something about how they do manage questions of war, environmental sustainability, and so on. And it's at least an optimistic thought that any aliens that we might encounter, intelligent aliens that have managed to get through this bottleneck that we're in at the moment, have probably found a way to get along without war, without destruction. And so I think that we probably should be looking forward to meeting them rather than, than being scared to meet them. 
I spoke with Harvard theoretical physicist and astrophysicist Avi Loeb recently about his book Extraterrestrial, which asks two important questions. One is, is there life out there? And the second question is, if that answer is yes, are we ready for it? Do you think that if we discover alien life that we here on Earth are ready for it? I think we are. I don't think that it would be quite as much of a upheaval as some of the science fiction movies portrayed it. And partly that's because I think that when we discover alien life, it won't be in the form of an alien spaceship coming and landing on Earth. I think, much to my disappointment, really, that we'll never actually visit an alien planet or see aliens in person. Interstellar space is just too big. We don't even think we're beginning to find any answers to how we could possibly travel realistically to other solar systems. So I fear that we'll never actually see these aliens in person. I'm very much hoping that alien civilization somewhere has an equivalent of David Attenborough, who's going to be sending us lots of TV images of what life on their planet is all about. But I think that's the way we're going to have to deal with it. And yeah, I think we can handle that. I think we'd be pretty pleased to find that. I hope for the sake of aliens that they have a David Attenborough on their planet. And last thing is a part of your career as a zoologist, you do take a special interest in wolves. Wolves are incredible creatures. What do you love most about wolves, Eric? And is there something about them that not enough people know about? Wolves have a special place in everyone's heart. And that's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that dogs were the first animals to be domesticated, okay? Wolves and humans share a lot in common. That's all. It's as simple as that. We're very, very similar. We live in similar groups. We live in similar societies. We're both intelligent, vocal, and social. And that's why dogs were so easy to domesticate. And that's why we still have this bond with wolves, because we see so much of ourselves in them. Is there anything that people don't know about wolves? The one thing that people mistake about wolves is they feel that they're somehow dangerous, threatening. And one of the questions I, I always get asked, aren't you afraid? Aren't you scared to go? All wild animals can be dangerous. The things that have most scared me have been a rhinoceros and a wild boar. I'm not particularly scared of wolves. They're very shy creatures. They're very shy of humans. And if they don't want you to see them, then you're not going to see them. So they're fantastic animals to experience in the wild, even if you just hear them. It's well worth it. Well, uh, Eric, I loved this book. It gave some great explanations for why life exists on Earth and the possibilities of life elsewhere and what we can expect if and when we find those things. I believe, like I think you do, that we will ultimately find those things as well. Thank you so much for writing this. I think this is a, an important reference guide and one that people will be very entertained by, whether you're a scientist or a layman on the subject. So thank you so much for this book and thank you for the time today. Thank you for inviting me. Great fun. And thanks to you for listening. Check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.